consensus of the universe, uh, the multiverse theory. I often wonder uh, what another me with a with the uh, how how his life is going in some other alternate universe. So. But uh, I'm pretty happy with this one. You are listening to Geekdom in Powers. Hello and welcome to Geekdom in Powers. My name is Guy Hassan and let me tell you about Geekdom in Powers. First of all, the name. The name begins with a project I had years ago, which was called Comics Empowered in which I just asked regular people to talk about how comics empowered them, and I was stunned to see how superheroes that represented the reader empowered, inspired, and caused kids and teens to change their lives. Comic books do empower. But I also think that geekdom empowers. The fact that we are able to take something we love and exploit and obsess over it does empower us because it gives us knowledge and we do the thing we like. And personally, I grew up during decades in which being a geek and a nerd was not cool and not fashionable. That is still true for many geekdoms. So I wanted to create a podcast that explores a wide variety of geekdom habits, shall we say, or jobs. A podcast that talks to people who are overlooked even by many geek websites. A podcast that highlights a diversity of hobbies, a diversity of artists, creators, and fans, and highlights the amazing projects that take place all over the world in hundreds of different countries that do not get to be highlighted because... They are not the United States, or the UK, or Australia. Geekdom in Powers will be published three times a week, on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and I hope to eventually create a wide, huge, representative map of the unexplored and not highlighted side of Geekdom around the world. Today, for our first episode, we have Ken Moa, an award-winning indie comic book creator and the author of the indie graphic novel A Light Before the Darkness, among other things. The conversation will take us to Hollywood, to animation, to opportunities taken and missed, and end up at the end of the day with a person writing at home stories he believes in, even when these stories are not the ones that will get him headlines or popularity. I should say that this being a new podcast, there was a learning curve about the sound. Please bear with us. I'm sure that after a couple of minutes, the conversation itself will make you forget the sound quality. I had a crazy idea about doing this on Clubhouse and having audience participation. The sound was awful. Uh, but again, I think the conversation will sweep you away. So uh, learning curve, do bear with us. Uh, the conversation itself is has nothing to do with the sound quality. So here it is, the first episode of Geekdom in Powers with Ken Moa. Enjoy. Hello, Ken Moa. Hi, Guy. How are you doing today? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing really well. Good. Uh, the, the, the question of how are you doing today always confused me as a geek because, you know... <laughs> How much of an answer do people really want when they just go in and, 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 and say, uh, you know, how are you doing? And you, peop, you most people don't want, uh, you know, an, ans- an actual answer. So I would scream when I was in my 20s, I screamed at people, you don't want to know how I am. Don't ask me. <laughs> that did not go over well. Uh, who 
lived here. And uh, he refused to start letters with the word dear mm-hmm. because he thought it was too familiar or should be romantic. And I said, you know, that's just everybody does. Everybody starts dear. And it just uh, doesn't mean affection. It just means, uh, you know, that's how you open a letter. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but he never got past that. So Was he perhaps same, also same a geek? Was he perhaps also a geek? <laughs> uh, no, no, I don't no, think so. No. Some of us take things too literally uh, sometimes. So I invited you here and thank you very much for coming because I wanted to talk uh, specifically about your comics, but also about the path of the indie comic book creator. Uh, so, so can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to today? Let's assume people don't know what that means. What is the political underpinnings of his sexuality? Uh, a 
woman who was drowned in the river as his model. And so she's less than uh, ideally portrayed. She's humanly portrayed. And this was a big rev- uh, uh, revolution at the time. He used, the ba- he used a, a dead body, a female dead body, yes. to, portray, to portray her. Okay. Yes, exactly. And uh, uh, he further uh, championed using uh, derelicts uh, from the streets as the saints. Because his reasoning was that uh, the closest analogy you can get to somebody who's out there preaching the gospel uh, and is, is someone as reviled as someone you would, you would not care to cross on the street. Um, and this was also uh, terribly con- uh, controversial, uh, but it brought people back to the, the pews. And so the, he became a... a a darling of the church, and as his fame uh, and uh, arose, uh, there became a greater and greater conflict with him personally because he was gay, mm-hmm. though not above using his sexuality um, heterosexually to advance his position. Uh, he had to hide the, the gay uh, part of himself, which... Uh, pretty obviously surfaces in many of his works. Um, and so that, that wait, oh, hold on. made him... Wait, wait, wait. Uh, how does it surface in many of his works? Like, I think most people would uh, would know some of his works. Yes, uh, well, so you have um, commissions for the, the church, and there's a, uh, an implied intimacy in a lot of his compositions, but he also did individual uh, commissions for patrons. Mm-hmm. And in that, uh, you have things like a boy with a basket of fruit, uh, where you see a highly uh, feminized and eroticized uh, uh, young man mm-hmm. uh, portraying Bacchus. And, there, and he, he also uh, gave that treatment to... Uh, uh, Cupid or or a booty uh, um, in Italian. Uh, so there were a lot of um, cues in his private commissions uh, that he sort of subtly um, injected uh, his own preferences into. Okay. And uh, so uh, unlike uh, now the the church had been a refuge for um, people of, of gay and deviant sexual behavior for a while as it continues because uh, one, uh, it's a place of power which shields you and two, for those who serve, who try to struggle against their desires, it seems like uh, a place where you can find a um, a safe haven from that, and that uh, those so those those two internal motivations uh, uh, have been historically a great tension in the in the Catholic Church, and uh, his way of handling it was to be extremely defensive and shielding, and he was a, a fantastic swordsman, uh, which to his detriment uh, eventually led him to. Um, a duel which exiled him from Rome uh, as a murderer. 
and forced him into a path of uh, penitence as a way to get back in the church's uh, good graces. And so let's take a step back. You you find out about this story and you want to tell it, right? Yes. By the way, I read, jumping ahead, I read the comics. They're great. The story. Oh, thank very you, good. Um, So how, how, how long ago was late in life? Like, uh, how long ago did you decide on this new career? Uh, well, uh, I had, uh, my, my bent was always artistic and uh, literary as a child, but I got talked into, like most people do, uh, doing practical things. And so I became uh, a, a database manager, a, uh, an art director for a uh, management consulting firm, uh, I worked for uh, Hughes Spacecraft and uh, eventually in uh, e-commerce development for uh, a, an uh, electronic and computer components manufacturer. Mm -hmm. And that was all well and good. Uh, but as I returned to get my degree um, and I came across the story, uh, I started also investigating the, the craft of screenplay writing. And it seemed to be the perfect melding of my visual and literary um, sensibility. Not aspirations, not aspirations, because uh, at the time uh, I couldn't admit to to wanting that. So as a hobby, I sort of took up uh, that and became so uh, engulfed in the story of Caravaggio and depicting that that it, it literally broke my brain for anything else. And so uh, I decided to, uh, after winning a couple of awards for the screenplay, uh, do the unwise thing of quitting my day job and uh, and focusing on writing. Mm -hmm. So you quit your day job uh, thinking you can get paid for writing without having got, without getting paid first, right? Yes. Well, I. I had received an, an option for this uh, screenplay. Oh, that's nice. That's um, very good. And that, that was, that was the, uh, the, the impetus, um, which, you know, uh, from a practical standpoint was unwise, but then it also freed me to, um, to commit to this, uh, fully. And after years of, uh, of, you know, and after the, the option expired, uh, you know, there was, uh, there were talks with, uh, Johnny Depp's agent uh, for the starring role at the time. Uh, wait, this is this is for the wait Johnny Depp for uh, for the Caravaggio role. Yes, for the role of Caravaggio. Yeah. Oh, that's impressive. That time, not that far. Yeah. Yeah, at that time he was uh, young enough. I mean, and he still looks young for, for for his age. At that time, I think it would have been a better uh, uh, fit. Well, how many years ago? How many years ago was it? This was in 2003. Wow. 2003, 2004. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, the director, uh, uh, Dutch director, he was very reluctant to deal with agents. And, of course, the, the, the agent's first offer was an $80,000 uh, pay-to-play deal, which, is, which would attach Johnny Depp. Um, mm hmm and who would get $80,000 up front, regardless of whether the movie got made or not. And he bought that. And, uh, you know, I found myself 
more and more getting into the producer's role, which is something I'm totally, uh, or, or at, at least at that time was totally unfit to do. So, uh, you know, the, the project languished and, uh, and the rights reverted to me. And yeah. so I was looking, uh, you know, first, uh, for other venues to, to get the movie made. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough in that there are a few entities that write period pieces. Uh, most of those are European, uh, production companies. And, uh, eventually I figured, well, you know, if I want to see this completed in, in any sort of way, uh, perhaps I could make uh, my own comic book. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so at a, uh, Comic-Con, I think around 2006, 2007, I approached uh, the legendary, uh, Neil Adams, uh, uh, with all the brashness of someone who absolutely knows nothing about what they're doing. Sure. And the great thing about the great thing about Neil Adams is that uh, he is absolutely candid and blunt uh, in a in a respectful way. And so I told him about my my ideals, uh, my ideas, and uh, asked him how much he charged. He right he let me know right up front that I couldn't afford him. Uh, he did research on me and then told me that there's nothing in my uh, in my uh, career that would lend me to think I, I could I could actually pull this off. No. But if I were to do it, my proposal for doing a ten, ten comic series would not fly with anyone, and that at most I should limit to six issues. And he, he just like boom, 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 gave me five pieces of advice for adapting the book and i took those and in in another year i had the uh, the comic scripts and layouts uh, done and found that uh, as much as i thought i had i had edited to perfection uh, i could cut even more uh, to make it a a visual story Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's what ended up uh, being the uh, graphic novel Mm -hmm. and a few successful kickstarters later (laughs) <laughs> and uh, the serialized graphic novel uh, became uh, the uh, the actualized graphic novel, which I self-published. And uh, I sent copies of the uh, that to uh, publishers, and uh, uh, finally got a uh, uh, a generous welcome from uh, a publisher in the UK called Marcosia, which is probably the leading publisher of independent uh, graphic novels. And uh, I think, uh, and my sales have done pretty well for you know for something that's a comic book that is not capes or horror or no. romance. It's not superheroes. So not yeah. romance in particular, uh, in a typical sense. Uh, it's done pretty well, and uh, and I'm happy to have uh, obviously uh, the wider distribution than I would I had normally when I was uh, independently published. That's that's good. It's it's a it's a harsh world. Everything you talked about is a harsh yeah. world. Trying to break into Hollywood is a harsh world. Having optioned your uh, uh, your script or your idea, or even your comic book, is not the end of the process. It's the beginning of the process, and sometimes you know it just reverts back to you after you haggled and uh, tried to get as many rights as you could, and you paid a lawyer to go over the thing and to haggle for you. It's just uh, nothing happens, uh, and and, and yeah. you've been through that with uh, winter, right? 
I yeah, I did. I optioned. Uh, I, I had a couple of options. I optioned Winter, and I did. I paid a lawyer for that, and we haggled. And uh, the the guy on the other side, every time he sent me an email, I wanted to strangle him. Uh, and then you know, you meet him in person, and he's like the kindest grandfather type you've ever seen. But when he sends you an email about your rights, you want to kill him. Anyway, yeah. it. it, yeah. it, it, it you know, I learned a lot about it. And earlier, like when after I published my first book, which is a collection of uh, stories, uh, one producer optioned uh, uh, one of the stories and then hired me to write it, which was uh, which was fun. And uh, speaking of which, yeah, I quit my job for that. Yeah, also. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't work out, <laughs> but you know. You know, it, it's funny when uh, it's not. It's not that I would totally have. Imagine that I, I could do such a thing, uh, but number one, I have a, a tremendously supportive uh, wife who uh, who is uh, delusional in her in her faith in me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and number two, uh, I found it impossible to then go back to e-commerce uh, development and programming. Uh, my my eyes would literally just roll off the screen, mm-hmm. and uh, I was I was in a place where I was having to learn. A new uh, programming language and environment uh, every few weeks as uh, the maturing internet uh, started struggling with security issues, and uh, and I I like to say that uh, Microsoft.net broke my brain, uh, and after that I was just you know every time I was in front of a computer my uh, I literally could not look at code anymore. And, you know, so it's not really like I had a choice. Uh, I was going to have to segue to something else. Uh, but yeah. uh, rather than go back into uh, uh, into art direction, uh, I just had to take the leap and uh, and, and write. Yeah, I, 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 when I asked you about, uh, like, did you do it? Did you quit your job for that? I wasn't judging. I've done it a few times and it, it's never worked <laughs> for me. And, um, I, you know, I know it's like when I got my first job at, uh, 22, I, in the job interview, I said, I said, they said, you know, why do you want this job? It was a job of a a secretary. Um, I said, because I don't have to think while doing it. I can think about the play that I'm working on now. Uh, and surprisingly, they hired me because you're not supposed to say that. And... (laughs) Yeah, they also asked me, uh, can you make coffee? And I said, I never made coffee because I don't drink coffee. I've never made coffee, but I'm sure I can learn. And it only took me three years to learn how to make coffee. So, you know. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> uh, so, so you don't drink coffee to this day, really? Uh, no, no. I hate coffee. and uh, Because I drank it once when I was 15. It was disgusting. And I drink it twice a year with like five cups, five uh, teaspoons of sugar. If I, if like I have to drive very late at night and I'm falling asleep, it, and because I don't drink coffee, it actually keeps me awake for like almost an hour, and then uh, I drop it. Well, yes, both my parents are from Costa Rica, so I had no choice. So uh-huh. they start so, you with when you're young, and uh, and it it never goes away. Yeah, it's from breath. I, I don't drink coffee. I hardly ever drink alcohol. 
I refused to drink alcohol, I think, until my 21st birthday. Uh, here it's, it's legally allowed, but I, because I, I have uh, an addictive personality and I didn't want to get addicted to it. But turns out it makes me feel bad. So, you know, I would, would never have gotten addicted to it. Well, so certainly, certainly advantages. Yeah. <laughs> I said, someone recently uh, asked me, we had a birthday party for one of uh, my kids. And someone said, uh, do you want a beer? And I said, I don't drink beer. And I don't drink coffee. But I do drink the blood of children. And then I thought, maybe I shouldn't say that to a parent that doesn't know me. But she laughed, so it's okay. So I also wanted to ask you about, like, what is it like to, to, to like, the, the physical... Um, the, the the physical day to day of trying to sell your indie graphic novel, of trying to find uh, readers for it, of trying to find to go to conventions and stuff like that. What is that like? Uh, you know, well, the the reason I published uh, in um, in twenty nineteen is that I, I wanted the following year. To, uh, to basically hit every convention that uh, I thought would be receptive to like like uh, uh, a niche book, uh, like uh, Alternative Press Expo. And, uh, and I think San Diego Comic-Con, uh, I had experience in there uh, when I started uh, a small animation company for a while. And uh, so uh, by the time I had all my ducks in a row it was uh, covid and uh, yeah that was fine. And, yeah and so at, at that point then i decided to uh, to pitch the book uh, to publishers uh, and that was you know that was a good uh, couple months process uh, i actually submitted the book to a publisher who said uh, wow it's great it's nothing like we would publish but i know this guy harry marcos in the uk and uh, and I'm pretty sure he'd be interested. So I, I so through that publisher, I uh, sent it to Marcosia, and uh, and I've been very happy with the relationship. Great, amazing. Uh, but but as, as as far as the day to day, you know, it's 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 a lot more time on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram than I would normally permit myself as a writer. And as a result, you know, my, my writing suffers. I mean, a lot of what I do now, as I process three other uh, screenplays into books, uh, a lot of what I do now is more editing um, than, than the more creative, uh, energizing parts of writing. And so that, in combination with the promotion, which I also find personally draining, uh, it can be quite. It can be quite a challenge to keep uh, enthusiasm up, and uh, and some days I don't, and uh, and my only friends are uh, carbohydrates. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but thank goodness for mac and cheese, uh, and <laughs> and then uh, so you know, uh, I, I would like to get back into the swing of uh, of creating new things, but you know, I'm I'm obsessed with finishing these projects. Because uh, as a as a writer, you know there there are uh, the pr- 
premium is on finishing things. Sure. And as you talk to people who, who don't write, uh, they say, oh, you know, uh, I'll tell you what, I have an idea. Uh, if you want to develop it, I'll split it with you 50-50. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, <laughs> that's because they don't know that uh, the actual writing is 90% uh, of the work. Uh, I don't know that inspiration or, or uh, even a high-concept idea is worth 10%. It's the slog of, of getting it to work that is the uh, the challenging part of the process. Yeah, the, the idea is uh, not the finished product. You just don't give it to no, a writer yeah. and then, oh, it's done. That's it. That's your idea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, there are two things there. So I'll ask them in the order they came. Uh, the What's the animation? Uh, you, you opened an animation uh, studio? A production company? Uh, yes. Uh, so so the second script I ever wrote uh, was Magnum Farce. It's a uh, spoof of Dirty Harry films. Uh, and that one actually got uh, got me meetings. It got me excited. Um, and, you know, again, uh, that one, it didn't even get options. <laughs> even though I had some, some excited meetings and then, uh, and then nothing ever happened uh, to them. And and often at that point, uh, once I, you've been optioned and then you have other meetings, you know, you get people saying, oh, you know, we, we love the way you write and, uh, and we know, you know, uh, your way around the screenplay. Uh, we've had this idea we've been thinking around, uh, would you like to take a shot at developing it? And then, uh, after doing one of those for free, mm-hmm. uh, at, with, with no fruit, then you realize that, oh, you know, it's just like, it's, you know, the, the money talks and bullshit walks. Uh, so, you know, there, there, there are some painful lessons. And so when it, uh, it came to the animation, I figured, well, uh, I'm not going to be able to tell anyone how good this is without having something to show for it. So I decided to, to animate the trailer for it. And that turned into uh, adapting the first act into a short and uh, so I self, uh, I self directed and self uh, financed that with uh, a little indulgent help from my uh, uh, a CG uh, animation company, who as soon as they got a real contract, dropped me uh-huh. and left me with uh, a bunch of scenes which I had to somehow edit into a short film, and uh, that did really well in uh, in the uh, film festival circuit. And so that that's another project that I'm adapting now, uh, Magnum Farce into a uh, graphic novel. Uh, but that's that takes second burner to uh, Caged Birds, which is uh, a sort of European psycho melodrama, melodramatic film inspired uh, work. Uh, again, as you can see, the common thread here is that um, uh, I don't do things that you would automatically think make money <laughs> in this uh, in this field, but you know that's just what I'm I'm compelled to write. And at my age, you know, I, I don't have the time to uh, to chase someone else's ideas. I've I've got plenty of my own, and that'll keep me busy uh, until uh, my time is done. Well, you only write your own ideas best. That's what I found. Write other people's exactly. ideas, you don't write them as well. 
but you keep saying at my age. What age is that? What? <laughs> oh, well, uh, I, I recently born. Not. Yeah, I'm 60, 60 years old. Okay. So, uh, uh, so uh, when I went back to uh, college, I was 39, or well, 37. When I transferred to USC, I was 39. And so, uh, really, it took me that long to give myself permission to do the things I liked. Uh, and, you know, uh, you come and do it with a lot of life experience. So, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know what uh, a me who would have gone into this field when I was 20 uh, would look like certainly a, a, a vastly different uh, creator than I am now. Uh, but I'm pretty happy with uh, my life experience and how it informs my work. For sure. Like, the thing that's hard to see when you're young and talented is that life experience plays a huge part in writing well. Because you can write well now, but later you have life experience and you can write well. And those two things together are great. So in the beginning, you write about your limited life experience and you also write from ideas you have. And then you write from much more knowledge. Um, so I, I also think when you start, you know, after 40 or after 50, you are, you have on the one hand, uh, more brave, you are braver in that you are feel free to be yourself. You feel less of a need to prove yourself as worthy or that you can do it. And you just want to do your own stuff. On the other hand, when you're young, you're brave. I'm speaking for myself, not for everyone. And very cocky, so it's a different kind of brave. Yeah, I mean, uh, and each presents its own challenges. Sure, uh, I certainly uh, limits the the active uh, the the lack of uh, useful energy. Uh, but you know, there there are uh, uh, trade offs, and um, you know. Uh, the current the current, uh, uh, the current uh, consensus of the universe, uh, the multiverse theory. I often wonder uh, what another me with a with the uh, how how his life is going in some other alternate universe. So. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm pretty happy with this one. Yeah, it's good. I, I found that even though I have more commitments because I didn't have anything when I was in my twenties and thirties. Uh, I have a wife and a family, family, three kids, and I have more commitments. I have more stuff I have to do, but that I actually write more today than I did then. And so, like, uh, and I also think that the fact that even if you take six months off and you do stuff with your family, you're stuck at home because of the virus, and you can't do anything because everyone's in the same place. That thing is life experience, and then it fills you and fuels you uh, when you can write. So at, at all times, you get experience, and once you're able to get that experience out, uh, that's important. Okay, so you also, uh, I think you answered my the question I didn't ask, which is what, what are you working on now? <laughs> well, you know, uh, part of not knowing what you're doing and, uh, and 
being bold and doing it is that uh, you know you you do things the wrong way, and uh, which I found out about a year into the Caravaggio uh, adaptation, because uh, I decided not only and, and this this works a lot with my screenplays too. Uh, I rarely write write just one. Uh, I have one on the front burner, and then I've got another. A secondary one that when I experience writer's block or I can't figure my way around a challenge, I'll write on that one. Uh, unfortunately, I went and adapted all four of my scripts. Uh, and then, uh, so I have I have Cage Birds and then Magnum Farce and then another uh, one called Ms. Valkyrie, uh, which are Ms. Valkyrie? Ms. Valkyrie, yes. Ms., not Ms. Uh, okay. And that one, yeah, that one is uh, a, uh, a hospice worker in the future who um, uh, tries to fight a, a system where uh, the rich and entitled uh, are, are getting to, to live longer and longer, and the rest of humanity gets to choose how they die. Hmm. And, she, it's, and she's called... You call her Valkyrie because she ushers the dead, the people who are dying. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and because it's my unique take, uh, hospice workers in the future, or at least a subset of them, uh, also dispatch people. Because some people, you, know, you ask people, how do you want to go? Uh, and sex is, a, uh, is, is an option. Mm -hmm. And that's her specialty. But hold on. Sex is an option? I just want to... Yes. It's a way to go. That is it. As a way to go. Mm -hmm. And that's a job. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, it's very, it's very uh, there are uh, uh, health guideline protocols and everything like that. <laughs> all the, uh, all the paradoxes you would have, such a thing uh, actually uh, came to, uh, to pass. And so, uh, well, even before that, it sounded fascinating and, and interesting. And now it sounds <laughs> even more fascinating. And yeah, when it's ready, I'd love to read it. Uh, oh, terrific! Uh, you you will be a uh, you'll be uh, my among my first previewers. Ah, great! Thank you. Well, that's a lot of projects, and they're suddenly you know, in you know, they're yours, they're no one else's. Yes, and that's very important. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's it's a great time actually to be a. Uh, independent publisher because uh, you know Kickstarter is a very popular uh, if you find your niche audience uh, folks are very willing to uh, to support you in what you do mm -hmm. uh, kickstarting is also another strain of a sort because you've got that limited window to really work every day to hustle to get as many eyes on your project knowing that some small percentage will contribute and then uh you know hit up your past patrons and uh and, you know uh, whatever awkward awkwardness is entailed in that especially when like me you're an eclectic writer and you don't really write the same genre twice consecutively uh well, so there, there are a lot of things you know let me ask you about that because that's been one yes. of the the banes of my writing life in my 20s and 30s because how do you keep an audience when everything you write is different from the thing that came before? Well, you know, typically you have to be really good 
to start to do that. Uh, if in in the the book and screenplay world, uh, William Goldman can write anything, and uh, and he would have an audience. Um, if you're Stephen King and you want to switch genres, you just adopt a new nom de plume. You've already got a publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, to start out with, uh, you know, everyone who is who is wise and see, and this would be the drawback when. If I were young, I would have been easily talked into simply writing in one genre and specializing in that, and then it would have been uh, the workaday world just in front of a typewriter for me uh, or, or a processor uh, as time went on. Uh, so uh, coming to it later in life and just determining that I'm doing this for for myself and uh, and whatever limited audience uh, niche audiences uh, I can appeal to. They're two totally different lives, and so uh, I I would uh, I don't think I I would have branched into as many different genres uh, had had I started younger. Uh, but you know, it's it's possible that that might have been the case. Uh, but uh, so you know, with Cage Birds, it was a tougher sell uh, to get uh, my funding goals and Kickstarter than it was for the Caravaggio book. And I, I don't know uh, what the success of Magnum Farce will be on Kickstarter. Uh, I'm not going to attempt that. Uh, I've learned to do these projects serially, at least in the funding part. Um, so I I don't know how successful this will, will be. It, it will be successful in that I'll be satisfied in what I produce. Uh, how eventually an audience will find me or be willing to jump genres with me that I can't tell you. Hmm. But you have the the um, declaration of interest beforehand in the Kickstarters. Yes. So the, I now know, I know now to start drumming up interest before you launch a Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, uh, and that, Helped me go through a second campaign with Caravaggio. When the, when first, it was a serialized graphic novel, so six chapters. And then I, I uh, had another campaign for the uh, trade paperback. Uh, and by the time that happened, I was a little uh, savvier. Uh, it did not help me at all with Cage Birds because it's a diff- different genre. And uh, I didn't know how to. Uh, if I should plug this uh, as a romance, uh, you know, psychosexual melodrama is intriguing to people who read books and turns people off who typically read graphic novels. Uh, so that was a much harder sell. And I've got another Kickstarter planned for uh, uh, next year's uh, Valentine's Day to finish the series. Uh, so I'll see if my lessons learned uh, help me out any. Uh, I will publish it anyway, re- regardless of my, the results on Kickstarter. Uh, but it, it'll be nice to have the fans up front, uh, which is uh, as big uh, an advantage uh, of Kickstarter as the financial uh, goals that uh, you attain. Um, because the, if people are willing to invest in you, based on your ideas and what you presented them so far, 
they're a much more receptive audience so when you actually finish. Right. Great. Thank you. A anything you want people to know? Anything you want to say before we go? Oh, um, you know, just uh, if, if you want to follow me on social media, uh, my handle is uh, Bella Fe Media. That's Bella F-E Media, like Santa Fe. Uh, or just kenmora.com, all one word, uh, and that'll get you uh, links to my social media. Um, uh, at my website, you can join my mailing list if you're interested in, uh, in being first in line for uh, my developments uh, as they, they come around. Um, and if you're thinking of going into this, uh, just know that uh, it's, it's a slog. It's, uh, it's a challenge, and uh, you have to be satisfied with the creative part of it because no one can guarantee you any more than that. Well, if you're going in, it's because you have to tell the story. It's not because you want fame. It's not because you're going to get money from it. It's because yeah, yeah. you needed to tell the story. Yeah. Oh, and, you know, uh, and it, it occurs to me, I should be doing more bragging on myself. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> So uh, uh, this uh, Caravaggio, A Light Before the Darkness, is winner of the uh, Screencraft Cinematic Book Award, uh, recently the uh, Independent Press Award, and I've been uh, a finalist in uh, some good competitions like the uh, Wishing Shelf Award in the UK, uh, National Independent uh, uh, Publishers uh, Association, and the, oh, and the Eric Hoffer Award, uh, those were all finals uh, of mine. Uh, and, and I've gotten uh, some good reviews, you know, plenty, plenty of uh, uh, good quotes for the back of the hardback edition, which you can uh, pre-order on Amazon now. Um, and, and thank you very much to uh, Harry Marcos of uh, Marcosio Publishing for going the extra to make a hardback edition because... Uh, um, Costs money. It is typically it is typically backwards from, from the way it's done. It's typically uh, hardback then trade paperback, but uh, apparently uh, they have enough faith in my work that uh, they they're going to a hardback run uh, after this. So uh, I hope you will see it on bookshelves, and uh, you'll you can always find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Comicsology, and. Uh, it, any of uh, any people who find this podcast who uh, want to get in touch with me, uh, I'm I'm very much open. That's great. Thank you, Ken. Thank you very much for being open and telling your story and uh, coming and being our first guest ever. Uh, well, it's my pleasure, and and uh, guy, I hope you will uh, very much consider uh, a a winter trade paperback Kickstarter. Uh, it would be. I would love to be the first uh, on board to support you in that. I think it's a, a stellar story, a fantastic story arc. It's it's a, an envisioning of of a, a future or a deep uh, dark or a deep past, uh, which I think is refreshing in a way uh, I haven't I haven't much experienced. Uh, along with the Swashbuckler Diaries, which is um, uh, a fantastic, literally a fantastic journey into 
uh, a life that exists only in dreams. And by the way, it's a big, it's a big thing I ruminate on is the, um, the difference between the imaginary world and the real world and what possible bridges there might be between the two. Uh, so I, I hope you will, um, uh, continue to do what you do and uh and you've got a big fan in me thank you i really appreciate that and it's uh you know you have a big fan in me and uh yeah winter is with a y and you can find it in comiXology and the scotch buckler diaries is a podcast so listen so if you want to see the difference between uh how how the fantasy how the dream world and the real world mesh together as soon as the first uh book is done which is like in hopefully a couple of months the proof, the proof editing is done. I'll send you a copy. Excellent. I would love to read it. Great. Um, so, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ken. And it's such a great uh, episode. And thank you for speaking with us. Uh, my great pleasure. Anytime, guys. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find Ken on social media like Twitter and Instagram with the user handle at Bella Fay Media, which is B-E-L-L-A, Bella Fae, F-E, Media, M-E-D-I-A, and at BellaFayMedia.com. Join us again in two days as we talk about Leonard Nimoy, Joseph Campbell, Armageddon Khan, Armageddon Khan, Armageddon Khan, and more as we explore decades of life of a science fiction and fantasy illustrator. Remember, we publish three times a week on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I will see you in two days. And for now, the more power to you. <laughs> see you then.